Today we're starting a brand new series of messages, so you're in the right place. We're starting a new collection of messages that we're calling More Than Enough. More Than Enough. So often in life, we want more. It's just in our human nature. We want more money, more relationships, more time, more opportunities. But maybe what we need is not more, but maybe what we need is a better understanding of what we already have. And I'm thankful today that we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians in a new verse-by-verse study. And so I'm looking forward to diving in. You can find a seat this morning. And if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab it. And we're going to be in Colossians chapter number one. Anybody looking forward to the habit truck after the service today? All right. 32 of you are excited for the habit truck. Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat back. Most of the verses will be on the screen as well today. But let's start reading in verse number 1. The Bible says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Everybody say the will of God. And Timotheus, Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks, everybody say thanks, to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which ye have to all the saints. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, where have ye heard before in the word of truth of the gospel which has come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you since the day ye have heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. For a few minutes today, I want to speak to this subject, fresh vision. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, fresh vision. Turn to your second choice and say, you too, fresh vision. Let's have a word of prayer together today. God, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. Lord, thank you for what you already did in the first service today. I pray that you'd speak to us through your word in this 10 o'clock hour. God, I pray that we would recognize today that there is reason, there is purpose for us being here today in this service. God, I don't know all the different backgrounds and demographics represented in this room, but I know that you are sovereign and in control. And I know that your word is still speaking today. And so Lord, I pray that we would find exactly what it is you would have for us and that we could leave differently because of it. We love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said. How many of you wear glasses or contacts? Can I see your hands, glasses or contacts? I remember when I was in sixth grade, I started to wear glasses and they were not cool glasses. They were not hipster glasses. They were just straight up nerdy, dorky glasses. How many of you went through a dorky glasses phase? Anybody like that? Some embarrassing photos that you might have somewhere. And I remember I desperately wanted to get contacts. And so when I was in seventh grade, my mom let me get contacts and I quickly discovered that wearing contacts is a lot of work. And you gotta make sure those things are clean and. 
you know, you got to make sure that you don't wear them too long and they sting your eyes when you put them in. And so uh, I wore contacts for a few years, but when Katie and I got married, I decided that it was time that I would get LASIK eye surgery. And so we went in for a consultation to get LASIK eye surgery. And I remember they were kind of explaining to me this process. And the first thing that they said was, don't worry, it's a very simple process. It's going to be pretty easy. The first thing that we're going to do is we're just going to cut a flap into your eyeball. And I thought, let's kind of rewind for a second. You're going to cut a flap into my eyeball. Let's define flap for a moment. Like you're going to cut a flap into my eyeball and they explained this whole process. And so I decided to do it. I wanted to get LASIK eye surgery. And so uh, I went in to get uh, the surgery and they gave me a little football as I was going to sit down in the chair. And they said, we give this to anyone uh, that might be nervous about this surgery. And you can kind of just hold on to this and uh, in case you get nervous. And I was just thinking if something goes wrong, this little football going to do no good. All right. It's just going to make me furious. And so, um, uh, so we started the surgery and they put these eye drops in my eyes to kind of numb my eyeballs and they didn't tell me, but they covered up my eyes with something. And so everything went black. And for a moment I thought I'm going blind. Like this is, this is not good. And, uh, I'm losing my vision. And, and, uh, eventually the surgery got done. It went well. I went home. They made me wear some goggles so I wouldn't uh, touch my eyes. And so I wouldn't bother, uh, touching my eyes. And the next morning I woke up and I could see clearly. And the, yes, wow. And in the first time uh, in years, I, I didn't have to reach for glasses and I didn't have to put contacts in and I had fresh vision. You know, I thought about that and I thought about this truth that so often in life, what we struggle with the most is the ability to see things clearly. Often we have a distorted perspective and a distorted worldview, and the lens in which we view life is often distorted. Our worldview is based on our experiences, it's based on education, it's based on emotion many times, and because of that, our worldview is often distorted. And this is the reason that Paul decided, the apostle, that he was going to write this letter to this church that was in the city of Colossae. Why? Because they had impaired vision. They had a vision problem. They were getting distorted distracted with secondary things and secondary ideologies. And Paul wanted to write to them to say, hey, you need to fix your attention back on what matters most. You need to fix your attention on what really matters. And what really matters is Jesus Christ. And he was saying, you need to get back to the person of Jesus and discover a fresh vision for who Jesus is. And I believe today that what the church needs more than ever is to get back to an understanding of who Jesus is and get a fresh vision of who Jesus is. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. And so Paul writes this letter. He wants them to get a fresh vision of who Jesus is because so many things in life compete for our attention. And I wanted to illustrate it this way this morning. So many things in life are trying to get our attention. Our schedules are very busy. And uh, let's say that this wheel represents our lives and each spoke in the wheel represents something that uh, takes up time in our lives. And so, you know, it might be work. It might be kids. What else would take up? Somebody shout to me. What else would take up some time in your life? School. school. Uh, so school and work. What else? Family. Doctor. It says family, just bear with me. Okay, doctor. And uh, okay, so all these things take up uh, time in our lives, right? Career, uh, sports, and, and uh, all these different things. And what we do sometimes is this is how we think. We think, okay, well, all these things are competing for my attention. I better make sure that I have a, a sliver and a spoke for uh, Jesus. 
because Jesus is important. Would you agree with that today? And so let's make sure that Jesus is a part of our lives. But something doesn't feel right about this, right? Like something just doesn't feel right about about just having Jesus as one spoke and all these different things that we're trying to, to, to fight for uh, when it comes to our time and schedules. And so what we'll do is something like this. We'll say, you know what? Jesus is important and he deserves a bigger piece of my life. And so I'm gonna give Jesus a very big piece of my life and I'm gonna make sure that I go to church on Sunday morning and I'm gonna be a part of small group and I'm gonna try to make Jesus a big prominent piece of my life. And here's what I want you to know today. If that is your thought process, you will end up disappointed. You will end up discouraged if you think, I just need to give Jesus a big portion of my life and give him a big time allotment in my life. Because Jesus did not live a perfect life and go to the cross and die for us in our place so that we would give him a piece of our lives. What we need to do today is to recognize that Jesus does not just deserve to be prominent, but he deserves to be the very center of our lives. And everything that we do flows from a relationship with Jesus. And so we go to school for his glory. We go to work for his glory. We raise our children for his glory. We go to the doctor for his, everything that we do, it flows through a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the message of Colossians. Paul said, hey, uh, uh, the message of Colossians is not that you would make Jesus prominent, it's that you would make Jesus preeminent, that he deserves first place in your life. Hey, the last time I checked, the Bible still said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. And so Paul was desperately trying to communicate to the church to get a fresh vision of who Jesus is, and then to put Jesus at the center of their lives. Now, interestingly, Paul had never been to the city of Colossae. Paul did not start this church uh, in Colossae. Paul wrote this letter from a prison cell in Rome in about AD 60, and uh, he wrote this uh, to a church that was in Colossae. He had never been there, which is unique to a lot of Paul's letters, because a lot of times, you, you know, you hear Paul started this church, and he was writing to some of his dear friends, but Paul had not visited Colossae as far as we know, and this furthermore was considered to be an insignificant city. Historically, uh, if you study this out, there were many other prominent cities that were surrounding Colossae. And so most people viewed Colossae as kind of an insignificant city. In fact, one commentator, J.B. Lightfoot, he said this, Colossae was the most unimportant town to which Paul ever wrote a letter. And so this was a little town. Paul had never even been there. It was labeled as insignificant. But I'm thankful today that our God does not go by man-made labels. And so what the world might say is insignificant, God might say is significant. You might think your job is trivial. You might think your nine to five is insignificant. You might think that your circle of influence is not that great and that your neighborhood is not that great. But can I just remind you that little is much when God is in it and what man rejects, God selects. I'm thankful today that uh, the city of Colossae was viewed as insignificant in the eyes of the world, but God had big plans and a big purpose for this place. And so Paul's in prison. Everybody tracking with me so far? He's in prison. And a man named Epaphras shows up in his prison cell there in Rome. And he says, hey, Paul, I need to talk to you. And uh, there's a problem back home in Colossae. Epaphras was the pastor at the church in Colossae. And he says, we have a problem. We have some issues. Their problems were not necessarily relational issues. Their problems were theological and uh, ideologies that were infiltrating the church, that were false, that were distracting the church. By the way, the devil loves to get a foot uh, in the door of a church 
church through wrong philosophies and wrong ideologies and, and uh, theology that is twisted and distorted. And so that's what was happening in Colossae. Now, I want to share a little bit about this problem in Colossae. Would that be okay by way of introduction today? All right. And so I want to teach a little bit just for a moment. Okay. Uh, because, uh, you can teach without preaching, but you can't preach without teaching. And so I'm going to teach just for a moment today. And I want us to see some of these problems in Colossae. Uh, the first problem was this idea of syncretism. How many of you have ever heard of this, this idea of syncretism? Syncretism is the idea where you take a bunch of different truths and you try to sync them, combine them into one thing. This was happening at Colossae. Hey, we believe in Jesus. But let's also just kind of add this to the mix. And let's take Jesus plus astrology. And let's take Jesus plus Christian science. Let's take Jesus plus horoscopes. And let's just kind of live out your truth and your truth. And let's just sync these ideas together in a very pluralistic worldview. We'll all just get along. Syncretism. The second problem was Gnosticism. Gnosticism was this idea that there was this elite superior knowledge that was reserved for just a select few. And so if you got saved, you were kind of on the team, but you were JV, you were junior varsity. And it's not until you grow and really understand this superior elite knowledge that you can become varsity and you can become like us. This was Gnosticism. Furthermore, the Gnostics denied anything that was flesh. All that was flesh was wrong. They, they only believed in the mystical, the spiritual. And so if something was fleshly, it was sinful. That is why the Gnostics denied the deity of Jesus Christ because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so they said it can't, he can't possibly be God because he's, he's flesh. That was Gnosticism. The third problem that was infiltrating Colossae was this idea of asceticism. This is uh, really a self-deprivation. Self uh, this was a self-destruction. Uh, they wanted to deny themselves so much to the point, because they were afraid of sinning, that they wouldn't enjoy any pleasures in life. If it was fun, they wouldn't do it. They would kind of live off by themselves because they were afraid of falling into sin, and so they were living in this isolated lane. Uh, by the way, the opposite of asceticism would be Epicureanism or antinomianism, which simply means, hey, you can do whatever you want. Just live however you want. If it feels good, do it. Go ahead and enjoy Enjoy yourself. Life is short. YOLO. You only live once. Just do whatever you want. But these were the problems that were infiltrating Colossae. Everybody tracking so far? Yes, Here's what I want you to see. Paul, rather than zeroing in on the problems, he zeroes in on the solution. Often what we do in life is when a problem arises, we want to pinpoint the problem. We want to focus on the problem and just uh, fixate on that problem. Rather, Paul is going to give us the solution, and he wants to concentrate on what the solution is. Anybody interested in what the solution is today? Notice verse number one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus. Everybody say Jesus. Verse number two, towards the end. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Verse number three. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus. Verse number four. In Christ Jesus. Here, Paul was saying the answer, the solution to these problems is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is everything that we need. He is more than enough. Jesus is the answer. Now, I'm not saying today that you shouldn't get counseling. I'm not saying today that you shouldn't go to the doctor. I'm not saying today that you shouldn't have some friends that can influence you. But what I am saying today is the ultimate answer for every ache that you have is found in Jesus Christ. And the ultimate solution to every struggle that you have today is found in Jesus Christ. And the ultimate hope that we have today for every hurting heart is found in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is the solution. He is the answer. So what is Paul saying in this letter? Get a fresh vision of who Jesus is. 
and then put them at the center of your life. Now, if you do that, if you get a fresh vision of Jesus and put him at the center of your life, there will be four ramifications. There will be four life-changing benefits. Are you interested today? Let me give them to us today if you're taking notes. Number one, there will be gratitude. There's going to be gratitude. Paul is going to exhibit for us in these first few verses gratitude. I want us to see it. Starting in verse number one, it says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother. I love how it's always Paul and Timothy. Have you noticed that in the New Testament? Paul and Timothy. Timothy and Paul. Paul and Barnabas. Peter and John. Do you notice how there was always a partnership? I wonder today, who was on the other side of your and? Seth and. Randy and. Who is it in your life that can hold you accountable? Who is it in your life that can ask you the tough questions? Who are you partnering with in life uh, that can be that iron sharpening iron? And so Paul and Timothy, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks. We give thanks. I thought this would be an appropriate time to remind us that Paul was currently writing from prison. He's writing from prison, and what is he saying? I'm so thankful. My heart is filled with gratitude. And this reminds us that when Christ is put at the center of your life, your gratitude, your joy is not linked to circumstances. It's linked to Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, uh, Paul just had this gratitude, this joy, in spite of the fact that he was in prison. If, If the question, how are you doing, and how are things going, are linked together, you have a misplaced joy. In other words, Paul, how are things going? Not good. I'm in prison. I don't have a release date. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I'm all alone. How are things going? Not good. Paul, how are you doing? Great. I'm here in prison, and I'm able to write letters, and I'm able to write letters to the church at Philippi, to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Colossae. I'm thankful that God has given me this opportunity to put pen to paper. See, Paul just had this joy and this gratitude that was, that was not uh, linked to his circumstances, but linked to Jesus, and there was gratitude in his life. Now, specifically, what was Paul grateful for? Are you interested? What, what were the specifics, okay? Let's see it in verse number four. Since we heard of your faith. Everybody say faith. Faith. In Christ Jesus, in of the love. Everybody say love. Love. Which you have to all the saints for the hope. Everybody say hope. hope. You notice that trifecta there of Christianity that you see often? Faith, hope, and love. It's kind of like the triple threat of Christianity. Faith, hope, and love. You see it all the time on Christian mugs, on Christian calendars, on Christian greeting cards. Faith, hope, and love. Now faith, we know what to do with. Believe, trust, Love, we know what to do with, right? Love your neighbor. But hope is something that we often don't know what to do with. Hope is kind of like the last kid picked at recess to play on the sports team. It's like, it's there. We're not really sure what to do with you. Um, Hope, hope. We're confused with this idea of hope. You know, in the Bible, hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is not just like, man, I hope things go well. Uh, Hope in the Bible is this Greek word, elpis. It means the confident expectation of good, the confident anticipation of something. And so here, what Paul is saying, he's saying, I'm grateful because there is the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. He He was thankful and grateful because there was hope in heaven. Did you know that, according to Pew Research, that one out of every six Americans does not believe in the reality of heaven? We don't even think about heaven. 
And here Paul was saying, I am grateful because of the hope that we have in heaven. Heaven is a wonderful place that Jesus promised for us. John chapter 14, verse number one, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions, many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Is anybody thankful for that promise today that Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you into myself that where I am, there ye may be also. And so heaven is our hope. It's our confidence. Can I tell you today, you can mark it down. Heaven is not only a destination, it's a motivation. It's not simply a destination. It's a motivation. If you have the hope of heaven, the confident expectation, the confident anticipation of heaven, it'll change the way that you live. Uh, last Saturday, uh, we took our kids to Cracker Barrel for lunch, which just pro-parent tip, that's the worst place you want to be on a Saturday. It's the most busy place on the planet, uh, Cracker Barrel on Saturday. And there was no seats available, so we just waited in that store. How many of you have been in the Cracker Barrel store? Anybody been in there? It's like your kids want every single thing in that store, right? It's like, it's like awesome for them. And so we were waiting in there, and there was a Christmas tree in the corner and had a lot of ornaments on it and uh, $1 ornaments. And so I told our kids, you can go over there. And while we're waiting, you can pick out a $1 ornament. And so they were excited picking out their ornaments. They came home, they were excited. And now they're asking, when are we going to set the tree up? You know, they're looking forward to Christmas. And I thought about that. And I thought, you know, one of the greatest parts about Christmas is the journey leading up to it is the anticipation of it, right? Putting up the lights and getting ready in the season. You know, one of the greatest things about heaven is the anticipation of it the journey that we're just passing through in this life, but our home is not here on earth. Our ultimate home is in heaven. We have dual citizenship. Our home is in heaven, and this is something that we can look forward to. This is the hope that the Bible talks about in Hebrews 6, is the anchor for our soul. The anchor. How many of you have ever been on a boat with an anchor? All right. Typically, anchors go down into the water. The Bible says in Hebrews 6, 19, that the anchor that we have, this hope for our soul, is anchored within the veil, which means our anchor does not go down. Our anchor goes up to heaven. It's secured in God's throne room behind the veil. And that means that when the storms of life come and want to knock us down and want to take us out, we have this anchor that stabilizes us. We have this hope that is secured within the veil. We have this hope that is laid up for us in heaven. And this should change the way that we live. Because heaven is not simply a destination, it's a motivation. And so this is why Paul could have gratitude in his heart and in his life. He put Jesus at the center and he was filled with gratitude. Number two today, when Jesus is at the center, there will be purpose. There's going to be purpose. You know, there's nothing more frustrating in life than not knowing your purpose. Than trying to figure out what you're supposed to do. Um, just this week, just for fun, I googled the question, what is my purpose in life? If you google that question, you will get thousands of articles, blog posts, podcasts, with thousands of different opinions on what your purpose should be. Most of the time, it leads to your happiness. Can I tell you that God does want you to be happy, but that is not your purpose in life. So many people are trying to find purpose, trying to find meaning. And by the way, you can find temporary purpose. You can find a cause to live for. Just go on social media. There's always a new cause to live for. There's always some sort of temporary purpose you can dabble in. But there's only eternal purpose that lasts forever found in a relationship with Jesus. It's the only way to have eternal lasting purpose. Jesus saved you on purpose for a purpose. And here Paul is going to talk a little bit about what our purpose is. Are you interested today? Let's see what he has to say, starting in verse 6. He says, which is come unto you. Now, what is come unto them? 
Well, if you read verse number five, he's talking about something called the gospel. The gospel was come unto them. Now, what is the gospel? The word gospel simply means good news. Everybody tracking so far today? The gospel means good news. What's the good news? How many of you are interested in any good news, right? We have enough bad news. Gas prices are coming up again. A lot, a lot of bad news. What's the good news? The good news, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus is alive today, and because Jesus conquered the grave, we can too, we can live on forever. That's the good news. And so he says, the good news is come unto you, verse six. Watch this phrase. As it is in all the world. What was he saying? He's saying, I'm grateful, I'm thankful that the gospel is spreading all throughout the known world. That, that, that followers of Jesus are seeking to make Jesus known. You know why God has placed us here on this earth? to make his name famous, to give him glory. We're not here to make ourselves known. We live in a culture that constantly wants to build our own brand and build our name and build a following and how many followers do I have? And we're constantly trying to put ourselves out there. Uh, but what Paul is saying is our purpose is to make Jesus known. I was reading this week an article about marketing and it was talking about how Red Bull when Red Bull first got started, that nobody was drinking Red Bull. Any fans of Red Bull energy drink in here today? And uh, nobody. Okay, very good. And uh, I'll continue to share the illustration. Anyways, and so uh, Red Bull, they were disappointed because uh, nobody was drinking their drink. And it seems like nobody is still drinking their drink today. Uh, but uh, they decided that what they would do is they would take a bunch of empty Red Bull cans and they would fill trash cans all throughout the city of London because they wanted everyone to look in those trash cans and see, man, somebody, uh, what is this new drink that's out? And man, this must be very popular. And they, they wanted to create this perceived reality that Red Bull was very popular. They were willing to do whatever it takes to make their brand known, uh, to get their name out there. I wonder today, what are we willing to do to make Jesus known? What is the church willing to do to let other people know about the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus? And so our purpose is not uh, to make ourselves known. John the Baptist said, uh, I must decrease, he must increase. And so to make him known, let's keep on reading about our purpose. Verse 6. It says, which is come unto you as it is in all the world and brings forth fruit. Can I tell you today, God loves you too much to leave you how you are? Yeah, he wants your life to produce fruit. The fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, meekness. He wants to change your life. Hey, you don't have to clean up your life to come to Jesus. He accepts you exactly how you are. But once you give your life to Christ, he loves you too much to keep you the same. There, there should be some fruit there. There should be some evidence. Let's keep reading. Verse number seven. As you also learned, everybody say learned, learned, learned of Epaphras. Now, if you remember, Epaphras was the pastor there at Colossae. And he says, you've learned of him. That Greek word, monthano, it, it carries the idea of discipleship, that you really learned from Epaphras. And he was saying, this is the goal. This is the purpose of life, to be discipled, to make disciples, to make Jesus known, to grow in our faith, uh, to continue learning. And so there will be a uh, purpose. Notice the third thought today. Uh, not only will, will there be gratitude and there will be purpose, but notice number three, there will be guidance. I'm thankful that Jesus doesn't just save us and then leave us on our own to figure life out, right? There's going to be some guidance. There's going to be some direction. Now, we're going to see this guidance starting in verse number nine. Notice what the Bible says. For this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire, watch this, that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, this is good news. 
that God's gonna give us guidance, that he's gonna fill us with the knowledge of his will. This means that we can know God's will, which is encouraging because a lot of people think that God's will is a mystery that they'll never figure out. Uh, One author, uh, Ray uh, Carson wrote, uh, the girl of fire and thorns said this, God's will. How many times have I heard someone declare their understanding of this thing that I find so indefinable? Like, we can't know God's will. God's will is just kind of this mysterious thing up somewhere in the clouds. And if you're lucky, you'll find it. And if you play your cards right, maybe you'll experience God's will. Uh, This past summer, our family was on a road trip, and we drove through Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It's not Lancaster. It's Lancaster because they get offended if you say Lancaster, but it's Amish country. How many of you have ever been to Amish country in Pennsylvania? Anybody? And uh, you go through Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We were driving through and uh, we saw on the side of the road, there was a giant corn maze. How many of you have ever gone through a corn maze before? Now in California, we have corn mazes, right? But they're not real corn mazes. They're not not super uh, big and and, uh, thick, right? And uh, there in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, they had Lancaster, Pennsylvania, they had uh, had these corn mazes that were just huge. And so we drove by, we pulled over, and uh, the kids really wanted to do it. And so Katie told me my responsibility as the dad was to go and check it out. So I walked over there and I just saw this particular one was just one big loop. It was just one loop. And so I said, no problem. Let them go in there. They can kind of circle back around. And so we let the kids go in there and about five minutes went by. Didn't hear from the kids. 10 minutes went by, didn't hear from the kids. 15 minutes, Katie, Katie asked me, she says, you need to go and, and, and figure something out. And so I walked over there and I discovered pretty quickly that it was actually not one big circle. It actually was a full on corn maze with many different uh, routes that you could take. And all of a sudden some panic started to set in. And so I, I started running through there and I'm like, guys, where are you? Blakely, Luke. And, uh, and I finally found Blakely. Her face was all red. She was crying in terror. And I was like, proud dad moment here. Let's not tell mom about this, right? And, uh, and so I got them all. We eventually found our way back out and everything was okay. You know, I thought about that and I thought the reality is sometimes that's how we think God's will is. It's like this maze that can just be frustrating and confusing. And right when I think I'm going the right way, there's a dead end and now I got to go back and I've got to try to ascertain and figure out this thing called, called God's will. But here what Paul says is you can actually be filled with the knowledge of God's will. He's saying it's knowable. You don't have to live frustrated and confused. You can know it. Now, I think defining the terms would be helpful because sometimes the reason why we get confused about God's will is because we don't really know how to define the terms. So I thought I would do that for us today a little bit. Would that be all right? So the will of God. Uh, It can be compartmentalized or characterized in three distinct portions. First, God's works. Okay, God's works would be God's uh, sovereignty, the creation of the world, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, God's works. These are things that God's just going to do because he's God, whether he has your permission or not. Okay, he's God, he's sovereign, he's in control, he's going to do some things in life. Those are his works. Second, God's ways. This is often called, called God's moral law. Okay, these are things that God commands us and instructs us to do in his word, right? We see uh, that we are to be thankful, that we're to abstain from fornication. These are all things that are God's ways, okay? So we have God's works, his sovereignty, what he's going to do. God's ways, what he's told us to do. And then God's will. This is the part that is not revealed to us. This, these are the things that we don't know. They're concealed to us. But here is the purpose of God's will, and this is what Paul is saying, is that the more that you have faith that God is sovereign in his works, the more that you trust his works, and the more that you submit to his ways, the better you will understand his will. 
Are you tracking with me this morning? So often we want to focus on the concealed will, but we do not focus on what is already revealed to us in Scripture. And Paul says you can be filled with the knowledge of his will. And so this is good news for us today, that there will be guidance in life. There will be direction in life, that he will lead you in the path that he has for you. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. He will lead you. He will guide you. Notice verse number 10. That you might walk worthy. Okay, now this is important. Everybody still with me this morning? That you'll walk worthy. So the purpose of knowing God's will is not just to be filled with head knowledge. Verse number 10, that you might walk worthy. In other words, it should lead to some action, being fruitful in every good work that God's called us to do something. So we know God's will, and God's will should lead to action. Do we have any sophomores in high school in the room today? Any sophomores in high school? Over here? Come on up here for a second. Can you come up here real quick? Let's give it up this morning. Where do you go to school? Etiwanda High School. Etiwanda. Let's give it up. Etiwanda. Sophomore. Sophomore. Um, the word sophomore is an interesting word. If you break it down into two parts, the etymology of sophomore. Sopho, the first part, it means wise. How does that make you feel? Pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. Wise. The second part of that word, sopho, more, more, is where we get our word moron. It means fool. How does that make you feel? Not so good. It's not so good. Not so good. The word sophomore means wise fool. Let's give it up for our wise fool this morning. Here's what Paul's saying in Colossians. You can be filled with head knowledge and still be a fool. Knowledge, the Bible says, puffs up. You can have all the right answers. You can know all the right, you can quote verses. You can have all the right answers and be a know-it-all and still be a fool. It's not until we take knowledge and we apply it and we walk worthy and we produce fruit unto good works. When you apply that knowledge, it becomes wisdom. And so Paul is saying, hey, make sure that when it comes to God's will and this guidance that you apply it and that you trust the Lord along the way. Now, this leads us to our last thought. Do you have one more in you today? There will be gratitude. There will be purpose. There will be guidance. Number four, there will be freedom. There will be freedom. Now, this is encouraging and good news today. I want us to close it out by seeing verse number 11. There's two reasons that we have freedom. First, because Jesus empowers us. He strengthens us. Let's notice here verse number 11. Can everybody see it? Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. And to all patience. Anybody struggle with patience in the room today? My hand's up. And long-suffering with joyfulness. He says, Jesus can strengthen you and empower you and enable you. And this is great news today for anyone that's ever felt weak. For anyone that ever has felt like, I don't know if I'm strong enough to move on. I don't know if I have it in me to go to one more doctor's appointment. I don't know if I have it in me to have that conversation with a family member. I don't know if I have the strength. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus will empower you 
and strengthen you with his glorious power. Did you see it in the verse? His glorious power. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about God's glorious power, I think about pretty big moments like the crossing of the Red Sea, like David and Goliath, like Daniel and the lion's den, like, like these big, powerful moments. But can I tell you today that the same power that rose Jesus from the grave is the same power that lives in you, that is available for you. Paul said to the Philippian church, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Sometimes we think God's never going to give, God won't give you more than you can handle. God always gives us more than what we can handle. He'll never give us more than he can handle because he'll give us his strength. He, he empowers us. Not only does he give us strength and empowers us, but I want you to see secondly, we'll be done today. He redeems us. He redeems us. Notice how the text closes. He says, giving thanks to the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers. He's qualified us, made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Sometimes in the New Testament, light would be referenced to kingdom. And so he was saying that God qualified us. He made us meet to be partakers in his kingdom. Who hath delivered us, verse 13, from the power of darkness and hath translated us. The word translated carries the idea of, of a complete deportation of one nation to another. And so he's going to take us from where we are and transform us into his kingdom. Verse 14, here it is. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Redemption, the word means to be bought back, to purchase back. When we were stuck in the slave market of sin, Christ's blood purchased us, redeemed us, paid the price so that we could walk in freedom. And Paul is saying this, there is freedom in the name of Jesus. Here is Paul sitting in a prison cell, and yet he knew more about freedom than anyone else around him because he recognized that Jesus empowers us, but he redeems us. He forgives us of our sins and sets us free. And so the question is today, have you had your sins forgiven? Have you been redeemed by the blood of the lamb? Have you been set free? I'm not asking today if you're religious or if you have some head knowledge or if you've been to church and if you know about Jesus, I'm asking if you have had your sins forgiven. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans puts it so clearly in Romans 10 verse number nine, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And today, if you've never put your faith in Jesus alone, today could be the day of salvation for you. I want to close with this picture of the last supper. This is Leonardo da Vinci's most famous painting. He spent three years of his life on this painting. And when he was nearing the completion of this painting, he called a friend in to give him some feedback. And I want you to let me know what you think about this and tell me what you think. And, and uh, the, the friend praised it up and down. This is beautiful. This is amazing. Wow, this is a work of art. This is a masterpiece. And originally, the Last Supper in this painting, da Vinci had a cup in the hand of Jesus. And his friend, Da Vinci's friend said, wow, that cup has such great detail to it. That, that cup is beautiful. And Da Vinci kind of hung his head and, 
immediately he went over and started to paint out the cup of the painting. And his friend said, what are you doing? No, I said, the cup, I said, the cup looks good. It looks beautiful. And Da Vinci responded by saying, nothing should distract from the person of Jesus. I don't want you to see the cup. I want you to see Jesus. And when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae, he said, I don't want you to see the world around you. I want you to see Jesus. Please hear me. Jesus is the most famous person who has ever lived. More books have been written about him. More songs have been written about him. More prophecies have been fulfilled concerning him than any other person. And he is more than a good teacher. He's more than a good prophet. He's more than just simply a historical figure, although he is that. Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is. He is God in the flesh. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross and he died in your place and in my place. He predicted his death. He predicted his resurrection. And that's exactly what happened three days later. He rose again and he is alive today. This is why we have hope in heaven. Where is your hope today? Is it in your knowledge? Is it what you bring to the table? Is it how big and great you are? Or is your hope anchored to something greater than yourself? Because Paul said our hope is anchored within the veil. Our hope is laid up for us in heaven. I wonder today, do you have a reservation? Do you know that your home is in heaven when you die? Because that's what this is all about. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.